All right, you can be seated. And I'm going to do something I don't do very often, uh, which is I'm going to attempt an illustrated sermon, message, whatever. Sermon has such a... Can have. That can be a trigger word for people. <laughs> it can have kind of a negative connotation there, but, uh, but it shouldn't. It's the Word of God. Amen? Uh, so just to share a little bit with you uh, about myself, I have been preaching the gospel in some form for over 20 years. I don't know what it was 23 or 4 years ago that Julie saw in me. Um, I was just this crazy guy in love with Jesus, and uh, God put us together. And uh, early on, I got discipled, and I appreciate the people who, you know, poured into my life and taught me. And I learned some things that was just basically typical Western evangelical thinking and gospel preaching. And somewhere along the way, I received a prophetic word from a person who told me that I would go through a season in my life when God was going to teach me about His grace in a way that I had not understood it before. And to be honest with you, that was a little bit alarming to me because back then I thought, you know, God's grace is for people who especially need it, <laughs> especially people that really mess up, you know. And so I thought, well, geez, what's, what's coming down the pike, you know. And... Uh, and I was very fortunate in that it was a very positive set of circumstances that uh, God began to work in my heart and in my life. And without going into all the details, uh, about six years ago, seven years ago, uh, some things took place in my life. We, our sons came uh, into our lives, and we had been believing God for many, many years for a family. And, uh, and just the... The act of being a dad. How many know being a parent be one of the most humbling things in the world? Like, like you know what everybody else should be doing with their kids. I'm, okay, maybe y'all aren't like me, but I knew how everybody else should be doing it, right? Uh, and I have repented of, if any of you, if I ever judged you, I just want you to know I have been on my face before God, and it's only been six years. And I, I crack up because people come and tell me, well, just be glad right now, Aaron, because you, right now you can control them. And I'm like, what planet are you living on? I mean, <laughs> you, mean I, you mean I have the illusion of control. I mean, if they get more out of control in their teenagers, I'm in trouble. But since we started later in life, I'm going to be, you know, <laughs> more forgetful by then anyway. And so... Uh, It'll be easier to process those challenges, but, uh, and one of the things I did was I went back to school and got a degree in psychology and got a master's degree in clinical mental health counseling. And one of the things I began to notice was I was studying things about the mind and the heart was how unhealthy the church was, uh, just in general and how unhealthy in particular the evangelical church was. And, and God was really setting me up for something. And I began to see something from the scriptures that was different than what I had been taught and what I had preached for many, many years. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but let me, let me just give you a little bit of, of data as far as culturally where we're at. Um, now, there, for a lot of people, there's this conflict uh, with this, what we would call the God of the Old Testament, <laughs> Especially as Christians. Now, the Jews, they don't call it that. They call it the Tanakh. That's what they call their scriptures. And I think they get a little offended when we call it the Old Testament. 
but since we're in predominantly what has been a Christian culture, we'll go ahead and use that term. And, uh, and it's just interesting because you find some really interesting things. You find some really ugly things, actually, about God in the Old Testament. For example, in uh, Psalm, you don't have to look these up, but Psalm 137, it talks about uh, finding joy in the dashing of infants against the rocks with religious justification. In Hosea 13:16, you find verses that speak of pregnant mothers. Now, I'm sorry if this offends you, but it's in the Bible. You find verses of uh, pregnant mothers having their wombs ripped open and their little ones dashed on the ground. Elsewhere, God's depicted as causing parents to cannibalize their own children in several verses. And a Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Raymond Schwager estimates that there are a thousand Old Testament passages that depict God as violently punishing men, women, and children. A hundred, at least a hundred passages, incite his followers to do the same. In other words, inflict violence in the name of religious justification. Now, I don't know if you know who Richard Dawkins is, but Richard Dawkins is an influential person in our culture, and he's leading a movement that they're calling the New Atheists. And uh, if you're not familiar with Richard Dawkins, perhaps you're familiar with Bill Maher from uh, the HBO, and it was politically incorrect 20 years ago, but I think he's on HBO or something now. Uh, But they love to take these verses in the Bible that I'm just mentioning to you, and they kind of cut and paste and create a caricature of God, quite frankly, that is monstrous. In fact, here's a quote by Richard Dawkins. He says, The God of the Old Testament is the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A capriciously malevolent bully. Now, when you bring up these passages with a lot of evangelicals and even a lot of my friends, they're quick to dismiss them. Just say, yes, but God is God. (laughs) And so somehow, you know, that justifies. But, but let's just be honest. Think about what we're justifying. We're justifying the murder of infants and pregnant uh, children. On the one hand, we say we don't believe in abortion. And on the other hand, we have scriptures where God talks about babies being ripped from their wombs and that being a good thing. You don't hear those verses preached much. And so it, it becomes a problem when we are people of the book but not really true to the historic Christian faith. Because the historic Christian faith ultimately is not about being a person of the book, it's about being a person of the person. See, one of the things I think we need to understand about Revelation is that God God did not just come down and reveal Himself, and why He did it this way, I don't know, but He did not just come down and reveal the fullness of who He was uh, immediately, but progress. But, but Revelation is progressive. I'll give you a basic example. The, the Bible begins restoration with a guy named Abraham, and God appears to him and reveals Himself, and, and then we have Isaac, and we have Jacob, and we have all these guys, Joseph, that you might remember from your Sunday school stories. And then we get to Moses at the burning bush, right? And when Moses is at the burning bush, God says, I'm revealing part of myself that that I did not reveal to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And there are things that are instituted in older parts of the Old Testament that later the prophets come along and say, don't do those things. 
Because the revelation of God was progressive. And ultimately, here's the truth, gang. God could not reveal who He was, or at least He chose not to reveal who He was through the medium of print. And He chose not to reveal who He was through the medium of a word. But instead, He is the Word who became flesh. See, the Christian teaching is not that Jesus was a good man or a good prophet, not that Jesus just taught an exemplary life, but that Jesus was God of very God, that He was the Word who existed, in the beginning with God who was God and that the Word became flesh. And John chapter 1 verse 14 makes a very interesting statement. It says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His glory. And John's implying that we hadn't beheld His glory before. He said we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now you know what the word grace means? (laughs) Some of you do because you've been hearing my preaching the last few months. But the word grace comes from a Greek word, the root of which is joy. And it is the joyful impulse that is in the heart of God to do good despite the worth, merit, or performance of the person receiving the gift. It's a joyful motivation in the heart of God to do you good. Now, here's the thing. We saw his the fullness of the Father in Christ full of grace and truth. If you're full of grace, if you're full, that word full in the Greek means full. If you're full of something, there's not room for anything else. And the implication is that the truth of who God is can only be seen in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we talk about having a personal relationship. Not one that's mediated by rules and regulations. So I began to see some of this, and I was going through my master's program, and one of the classes that we had to take in my master's program was a class called Ethics. And in my ethics class, we primarily dealt with ways that we might be tempted to break the law (laughs) as uh, mental health counselors. And so we learned all the laws that we had to follow, as well as just uh, what they would call best practices of what they considered to be the ethical way to conduct yourself in the profession. And I learned a lot in that class, but I didn't especially enjoy it. In fact, I took it online. We'd listen to lectures online, and I would find myself surfing the Internet and doing all kinds of things other than listening to my ethics class, but I still managed to pull off an A. I think Rob was in that class. And about the time that God began to change the way, because the way I had looked at Scripture and the way I'd looked at the Gospel had a legal foundation to it. It had an ethical, legal, right, wrong, good, evil foundation to it. And I was well-schooled in it, and I could preach it with probably the best of them. And in my dream, so I have this dream that God speaks to me in this dream. And if you learn how to honor your dreams and learn that that dreams really can be a vehicle that God speaks through and really begins to guide your life, you'll discover that there are some dreams that you have that will continue to speak to you and continue to get bigger if you'll stay with them as the years go by. And in this dream, I was required to take my ethics class over again. I was like, oh, Jesus, you've got to be kidding me. I had to take my ethics class over again, and so I attend the ethics class, not online, but in my dream, I attend it in in person, and a different instructor who was an instructor, but he was the instructor who taught our marriage and family class, and he's teaching the ethics class, and as we're sitting there, he's not teaching ethics, he's teaching marriage and family, and I'm sitting here saying, this is supposed to be an ethics class, but I'm getting marriage and family stuff. 
And then if getting the marriage and family stuff wasn't bad enough, he's talking about dream interpretation. Which was the first clue to me that this was an important dream. Talking about dream interpretation. And so I'm like, why are we sitting here in ethics class, learning about marriage and family, talking about dream interpretation? And suddenly the dream changes, and the next thing I know, I'm being recruited for this army. Because there was a big ship that was full of a lot of people, and it was headed in a certain direction, and it got blown off course by a westerly wind. And it had caused them to land in Australia, which we call the land down under. And they were taken captive there. And so the army was recruiting people. I don't know why they were recruiting me. They were recruiting people to go on this rescue mission to help these people that had been blown off course by a westerly wind and taken captive. Am I boring you? Okay. It's okay if I am. Say that too. And what's interesting, so, so I wake up and, I wake, and, and it's, it's 2.22 in the morning and I look at the, at the clock and I just see 2.22. And I, I've just learned, you know, God will speak to you through anything. God, God took Jeremiah down to the potter's house and while he's watching somebody make a pot, he's literally looking at them make a pot and, and God says, I'm speaking to you in that. You ever thought about that? And so I see this 2.22 and I think there's something to that. And what immediately comes to my mind is the verse from Ephesians chapter 2 verse 22, which talks about the household of God becoming the habitation of the Spirit and the family of God. And incidentally, my instructor's name, I looked it up because names are significant. Everything about these dreams can be really important. And I looked at my instructor's name, like what does the name mean? Just went to one of those, you know, baby name meaning books. And his, his first name means world ruler, world ruler or a mighty ruler. And his last name meant one who had reduced himself and become small. And I began to see there's a pattern in there because Christ, God of very God, became flesh. He was the world ruler who reduced himself small. And only he is the one that has the power to interpret the dream of God. See, even in the Old Testament, as wonderful as the Old Testament is and as wonderful as the Old Testament people were, they could not correctly or accurately interpret the dream of God. So not everything that's in there is right. Oh. I now I did it. Only God the Son, only the world ruler who comes down can correctly interpret the dream of God. And here was the point. I had understood everything about the foundations of the gospel from a legal, ethical, right, wrong, living right, doing right, not doing wrong paradigm. So I had to go back to school. Because the dream of God cannot fit within an ethical paradigm. The dream of God has to fit within a marriage and family paradigm. That's why we're called sons and daughters of God. That's why the Father gave the Son. Everything about what God does is about family. And so I began to understand something because the evangelical, some of, well, yeah, the, the certain streams of the evangelical protestant gospel that we hear comes only from the West. Absolutely true. It began in the West with a, a guy by the name of Anselm of Canterbury in about, um, I don't know, 11 or 1200 uh, A.D. And then it gets picked up 
by John Calvin, who takes it further, and then the Puritans take it even further until you get to the maybe the the, the most distorted example of the gospel, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God, where he talks about God despising humanity and despising sinners and holding them in the same way that a man would hold a spider in his fingers over a fire. God was dangling sinners over the fires of hell. And as evangelicals, we are the heirs of that, but it is a western wind. And the Bible talks about the church being blown to or fro with every wind of doctrine and the deceitful cunning of men. And so I began to understand in my dream that there was a deceitful wind of doctrine that had blown the church off course. But God was getting ready to take what had been seen only through an illegal ethical paradigm and reinterpret it through a family paradigm, releasing and revealing the dream that God has. Because our Bible says... In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we might receive the adoption as sons. That what's been in the heart of God since the foundation of the world was a father in search of sons and daughters and a, and a God in search of a family, not a judge in search of a verdict. One theologian influenced by Western, this Western uh, presentation, modern Western presentation of the Gospel, said God's primary disposition towards humanity is one of enmity and wrath. Excuse me. The Bible says we have beheld His glory and it's full of grace and truth. And if it's full of grace and truth, there's no room for wrath. And it's the Father's glory that the Son came to reveal. See, I understood that Jesus was the gracious one, but I thought Father was the angry one. And I was taught that Jesus had to come to get me off the hook with my angry dad. Like Jesus was the answer to some emotional conflict inside of God. He really wanted to be good, but His justice wouldn't allow Him so... Jesus had to pay because somebody had to pay. And I began to understand the gospel completely differently. You know, there's, there's no place in the Bible that ever says anything like that. As far as the wrath of God and, the, and, and Jesus becoming the recipient of that wrath. Now, in the King James Version, there's a word called propitiation. You want to say that with me? Propitiation. And the Old English meaning of propitiation meant to take your anger out on something. And the Bible says that Christ is the propitiation uh, sacrifice for us. So it would seem a settled case. The only problem is Paul didn't write in Greek. I mean, he didn't write in English. He wrote in Greek. And in the Greek, it's hilasterion. And hilasterion, what's so funny about this is that the Greek stream of the church has not been affected by that. And they look at that gospel and outright call it heresy. And they speak Greek. Because in fact it doesn't mean propitiation. What it literally means is expiation. Or it means to purify or to remove. Not wrath, but sin. And our modern translations have gotten it. The the new NIV version and the New Living Translation and the Revised Standard Version and some of these have gone it right. They've changed it from propitiation to the mercy seat or the mercy sacrifice. Or or, or as John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, not the Lamb of God who takes away the wrath of the Father. 
So where was God on Good Friday? Where was God in the cross? God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Because the definitive statement of theology for a Christian is not something written in the Old Testament or even the New Testament. The definitive statement of theology for a Christian is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And the definitive revelation is Christ on the cross. It's in the face of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness. Oh, can I just do a little side trip? Genesis 1-1. We spent months on Genesis 1-1, didn't we? Like, how could you find so much in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And what does the Bible say about it? It says the earth was without form and it was void and it was darkness on the face of the deep. Watch this. Without form, meaning chaotic. We have a verse in the New Testament that says God is not the author of confusion, but the author of peace. Which means that chaos is the exact opposite of how God is. And there was darkness. And John said in one of his letters that God is light. So if God is light, guess what? The creation is dark. It's completely opposite. And the word, the Bible says that God hovered over the face of the deep. And the word for the deep there is the Hebrew tehom, and it's the word for hell. Or hellish. So the picture of the earth is that it's dark, it's without form, and it's hellish. It's everything that God is not. Everything that theologians told me God despises. And you know what He does? He doesn't take creation and throw it in the trash bin. The Bible tells us He hovers over it. And the word for hover there means that He pulls it close and nurtures it like a mother with love. In other... In other words, from the very beginning, God was willing to look at things that were totally opposite of Him, condescend to them, and hold them close to His heart. And we have no... People want to argue for a young earth, get a life. You have no idea how long God was hovering over the earth before the six days of creation, which an ancient person never would have taken as a literal 24-hour period, ever. They would not have understood it that way. It's only us in our modern confusion trying to understand something because we force our scientific frames on the biblical text and we try to make it say something that it does not say. You will not find a Jewish person, and it's their book, by the way, who believes in six 24-hour days creation. I'm sorry if that offends you, but the bottom line is you have no idea how long God was hovering over the face of the deep. You and I have no idea... Oh, why am I doing this? You and I have no idea how long Adam and Eve were in the garden before the fall. So if you want to say, the earth is only 6,000 years old, get a life. I'm sorry. But you've got to understand, the world looks at you like you're crazy. And you want to fight for that because you want to be a person of the book. And, 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 and in some instances, we misrepresent God in the process. And we look foolish and we look stupid to an educated community. Alright, I about went over about like I thought it would. but <laughs> It's not my point. 2 Corinthians 4.6 <clears throat> says this, that in the same way that God hovered over the face of the deep and spoke into the darkness, that He has hovered over us and shown in our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. If you want to know what God's like, you look at who Christ is. So... Let me just do a little demonstration for you that I got off the internet. This isn't mine, but I want to do what's called the gospel in chairs. 
And the first presentation I'm going to show you is the presentation, the modern Western presentation that I preached for many, many years. And it goes something like this. In the beginning, God created man in his own image and after his own likeness. And he put him in the garden. And they walked in communion and love and fellowship together in a perfect place. But man makes a mistake and man sins. And when man sins, he turns his back on God. And in the process of sinning, man himself becomes sinful. And because God is pure and holy and he cannot look upon sin, God has to turn his back on the man that he made. And now there is a place of separation and there is a chasm that exists between God and man. And man is powerless to do anything to fix it. In fact, no matter how good man might be, no matter how much he may try, no matter how many efforts he may make to make up for his past mistakes, it's impossible for him to satisfy the uh, just requirements of God. And God's disposition towards the man is one of wrath, certainly not one of fellowship. But God has an answer. He, he becomes a man or sends his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus comes and he does what you and I ought to have done. He lives a perfect, sinless life. He walks in total communion and fellowship with his father, never does anything wrong, never makes any mistakes, and, and, and he's fully righteous. But then something happens, and God the Son dies. And when God the Son dies, God does the unthinkable. He takes all the sin of all the world, and he places it upon his son Jesus. And because now all the sin of all the world has been placed on His Son Jesus, then God must turn His back on His only Son. And not only does God turn His back on Him, but God takes His wrath against sin and He pours it out upon Jesus. So that you and I, if we decide to believe that, we decide to believe that what Jesus uh, did for us was satisfy the wrath of God and that what he did was actually sort of earn a legal righteousness for us. It sets the legal books straight. God's justice and judgment is satisfied. And if we believe in that and receive Jesus Christ, then we can enter into fellowship with him and communion with him. But if you don't believe that, and you reject that, and you turn away from that, then at the moment of your death, you descend into a place called Hades, or hell, there to be punished for all eternity for your life of temporal sin. Sound familiar? That's the ethical version, the legal version, the juridical version. So one I believed for many years. But then I began to see it's not true to the historic Christian faith. And I don't even think it's true to the Scriptures. And so there's a more biblical way to look at this and a way that is more Christian. Are you ready? It begins much the same way. In the beginning, God created the man and desired for man to live in fellowship. And they were walking in fellowship and communion in the garden together. And a serpent comes along and deceives the man and the woman. And because of a lie that came from the serpent's mouth, which we know later to be a personification of Satan, because of that lie, man chooses to live independently of God. And he rejects the government and the presence of God over his life. 
And when he does that act, what happens is, is that he dies. That's what God said would happen. He said, in the day you eat of the tree, you will die. And so man plunges into death. And because he had been made the steward of creation, he'd been given dominion over all creation. It was under his feet. Then all of creation descended into the bondage of corruption and futility and death. And when God saw this happen, He wasn't an angry God that said, Oh, I've been personally offended. He wasn't this narcissistic God that, 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 that all of a sudden now humanity had become the object of God's wrath. Rather, man maintained and still was the object of God's love and God's desire. And God looked at the man and said, No, this cannot happen to you, anybody but you. And because he was lovesick for humanity, God began to put into place a plan to restore man and to heal man. See, the problem in the other presentation is a legal problem. It's basically on the books of heaven, and it's some kind of emotional problem inside of God. And the work of the cross affects something in God. In this presentation, the problem is corruption and death and the fact that humanity is in slavery now to the powers of darkness. And the answer is restorative, and the answer is healing. And what God wants to do is effect a change in man, not a change in himself. Because after all, he is God and he never changes. And so Jesus never presented himself in his earthly life as the great lawyer who came to make things right at the bar of God's justice. Rather, he says, I'm the great physician who has come to heal the sick and call the sinner to repentance. And so he comes on a ministry, he comes on a, on a mission of rescue, he comes on a mission of healing, he comes on a mission of restoration. And so in order to change man, God does the unthinkable. He becomes a man. He ontologically changes who he is and who he's been for all eternity so that he can rescue the human beings that he loves. And so there's a woman sitting at a well, and because of the futility of life and because of the corruption of sin, she's been looking for a man to love her, but for some reason she just can't make relationships work. And so she's been through five relationships, and she's been rejected by five different men. And the man that she's with now is not her husband, and by implication that means she was an adulteress. She was living with someone else's husband. And what does God do? God comes to the woman at the well, and He meets her, and He says, I'll love you. He says, I know what you've been thirsting for. He's able to look past her problems into her real need. And he says, I will give you living water. There's a man who because of corruption and because of greed and because of, who knows, maybe he had a little bit of little man syndrome. Who knows? He betrays his own countrymen and goes into collusion against, uh, with the occupying force of the Roman government. And he begins to participate in an oppressive taxation system that is defrauding and cheating and stealing from people. And the whole community has rejected him. And what happens when God shows up? God comes to the man and says, come down from that tree, Zacchaeus. I will go to your house. I will eat with you. I will be your friend. And then he says, and today salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house. 
There's another man who's totally demonized. He's, he's so demonized, he's got a legion of demons inside of him. He's so demonized, he's been ostracized by the community, and he lives among the graveyards, and he doesn't wear any clothes, and he's a self-mutilator. He cuts himself, and he has supernatural strength that even when they try to restrain him to prevent him from harming himself, he's able to break the, the, the yokes of bondage. And what does this God do? This God sees him and says, I'm going to go all the way across the Sea of Galilee in a boat for one purpose and for one purpose only. And that's to meet with this man that everybody else, including the religious community, had rejected and despised. And when he meets him, what does he do? He delivers him by the power of God from all demonic bondages, sets him free and leaves him in his right mind. There's another man who... Because of the randomness of our fallen condition and corruption that we're in bondage to. Who has become diseased and because he's diseased, he's become paralyzed. And because people's view of God was judicial and they believed that God rewarded good behavior and punished bad behavior. Then the fact that he had a disease, they believed that there had to be something that he did that caused it to come upon him. So he fortunately, he had some friends, maybe some lifelong friends, who opened the roof and they lowered the man before God. And what happens when he comes before God? God looks at the man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Take up your mat and walk. There's a woman caught in adultery, caught in the very act. And under the law, written in the word of God, she is to be killed for the act of adultery. So the religious community that's anxious for blood goes and captures her and throws her down at the feet of this God. And says, what shall we do with her? Shall we follow the Word? And what happens when she comes to the feet of this God but that He gets down in the dust with her and He says, let he that is without sin throw the first stone. Meaning He was the only one qualified to condemn her. And pretty soon all of her accusers leave and he looks at her and says, neither do I accuse you nor condemn you. Go and sin no more. And finally, because of greed and corruption, because of man's desire to maintain an access of power through violence and through deceit, God is betrayed and rejected. He's scourged and spit upon and crucified. And what does this God do in the face of such treatment? He says, I forgive you. And finally, when the final dissolution happens and man descends in separation from life completely into death, What does this God do? He looks at the man and he says, love is stronger than death. And even if you make your grave in Sheol, I am there with you. (laughs) 
And because, because this God is a God of life, and because He is the resurrection and the life, it's impossible for death to hold Him. And so He rises up from the grave. And then He says, it says in John chapter 5, that those that are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they will come out of their graves, and they will live. And what's happened now is that God's presence, because He that had ascended, descended to the depths of the earth, now He fills all things. God's presence fills all of creation. And there's something flowing from the heart of God that the Bible pictures as a river of fire. And I want to tell you it's a river of His fiery love and His fiery passion for humanity. Because after all, God is love. And that love has filled all of creation. His presence and His love fills all of creation. If you go to the highest heights, He's there and He loves you. If you go to the deepest depths, He's there and He loves you. And a matter of fact, there is nothing that you and I can do to get away from this God who loves us so passionately. Now, because God honors free will, He'll let you try to get away from Him, but you're not able to because He fills all things. And so for those who choose to respond to God with love, that choose to respond to God with faith, this river of fire provides light and it provides warmth and it provides ecstasy for the Bible says that in His presence there is fullness of joy. But for those who choose to reject God, for those that choose to hate Him, for those that choose to continue to go their own way, this river of fire is not experienced as love, rather it's experienced as torment. In fact, Paul the Apostle says this in Romans 13. He says, uh, if your enemy's hungry, give him something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Do him good and not evil. And in so doing, you will heap burning coals of fire upon his head. But all that has to happen is for the man to turn to the goodness that is being shown him and reconcile in his heart with the person that loves him. And then he can receive those gifts as something wonderful that create a bond of friendship. So it's not God that needs to be reconciled to us. It's us that need to be reconciled to God. Let me just read you a couple things real quick and we'll move on. If I can find it. See, God's not the angry judge whose predisposition is one of wrath towards humanity. He's the loving Father who so loved the world He sent His Son. Jesus is not the great defense attorney who came to arrange a legal settlement. We didn't need a defense attorney. We needed a great physician who could come and heal us and restore us to the original image and blessing of God. Christianity reveals a God in Christ who is the good shepherd who takes the initiative in seeking out the lost sheep. He takes the initiative. See, Jews always believed that God was a God of love and forgiveness, that if the sinner repented, God would freely forgive him. But Jesus taught that God would not wait for the sinner to repent. He would go out and seek the sinner and call him back. 
In the parables in Luke 15 that Jesus tells of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, in all three, God is portrayed as ransacking the universe in search of one lost soul. So where does that leave us, church? Let me make a few suggestions. Today, don't ask, how can I find God? But ask, how can I be found by God? Don't ask, how can I love God? Ask, how can I first be loved by God? Don't ask, how can I know God? Ask, how can I let myself be known? Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's not man who knocks first at the door of God. It is God who condescends and knocks first at the door of man. But he won't force his love on you because that's not love. So you have to make a decision to open your heart. Let's bow our heads. I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what kind of gospel or God you believe in. I know what some of you do, but some of you that I don't know, I have no idea where you're at. But let me tell you something. You will never be able to outrun this God who is passionately pursuing you. He's more determined than you. He's wiser than you. He's a little bit more stubborn than you are when it comes to how much he loves you. And so the question for you really isn't if you're going to give up. The question is when are you going to give up? Because if you're here today to hear this message, it means that God has really identified you as someone that he is scouring the universe in search of if you don't know him yet. And there's nothing you can do to make him not love you. And there's nothing that you've done that can cause you to change the heart of God. You're just not that powerful. He's still a God who's full of grace and full of truth. And so if you're here this morning, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to, you know, do uh, the religious tricks where we have you raise your hand and all that stuff and try to get you down front. It's not about that. It's about what happens in your heart between you and a loving God. Because, you see, I've got to believe that you can feel him knocking at the door of your heart. I've got to believe that you can hear his voice calling you. And all you have to do is open up your heart and say, God, here I am. And the one thing he sent me to tell you today is he loves you passionately. He loves you desperately. And He's not interested in an ethical relationship with you. He's interested in a very deep, personal, intimate relationship with you. And it's available to every person. All you have to do is say yes to Him.